Amen. Thank you, Zach, and thank you, worship team and Ryan, for leading us this morning. Um, thank you, Stephanie, for acknowledging that uh, joined by my family this week. Thank you for your prayers leading up to that. Uh, it's certainly good to be back together again. This whole 780 miles between us is for the birds, so we're excited to, to be back together today. And um, as you might have picked up in... Uh, in Zach's prayer, uh, we're looking at triumph and tears today, and it's Palm Sunday, and so we're looking at the, the triumphal entry, but where we've been on this journey to the cross with Luke, in Luke's gospel, Luke also records the tears that Jesus shed in that moment, and isn't that the way that life goes? Isn't that the way that often the triumph is followed by tears, the praises are, are followed by the the prayer requests that are too deep to be uttered. And as we walk through life and as we journey to the cross with Jesus, we see that our lives are a reflection often of what we see in Scripture, that, uh, that the pain follows the praise, that the tears follow the triumph. And so as we sort of turn the corner and conclude um, with our Journey to the Cross series, next week we will finish up on Easter Sunday, and I hope that every single seat in this room is filled. I hope that you will bring people with you. We'll put more chairs out if we need to. Uh, Make sure that you're inviting folks to come and be a part of Easter at Linwood Church, um, because it's going to be a very special time. And then, following that, we're going to do a new sermon series uh, the week after Easter titled, Getting past your past. How many of you have something in your past that has made its way into your present? And if we don't get past those things, we'll carry them into our future as well. So we're going to spend a few weeks uh, just looking at getting past our past and some of the things that we can do in order to be free from, not to forget completely. We want to learn the lessons that God wants us to learn, but how can we get past our past so that it doesn't taint our future. How many of you were here week one of this series? We looked at the parable of the great banquet. We had the banquet table set up. A few hands are going up. That's a good thing. Um, how many of you remember the bottom line from that week? That, okay, yeah. Empty seats in spirit-filled churches break God's heart. And there are fewer empty seats in this spirit-filled church than there were five weeks ago. And so uh, that is cause for celebration. But that sort of ties into what we're going to be looking at today as we consider the things that break our own hearts. And I asked you four weeks ago when we started this sermon series, what breaks your heart? And I shared a silly story about something that broke my heart when I was young and in high school or something like that. And, uh, Today, I'm going to ask you a different question. I'm going to ask, have you ever prayed to have your heart broken? I would imagine most of us, if you're anything like me, you're not actually praying every day, God, break my heart, break my heart. Yet the song that we just sang had that prayer inside it. Did you hear it in the bridge? Break my heart for what breaks yours, everything I am for your kingdom cause. And if there's, if there's a prayer that God's people need to be praying today, it's that prayer that God would break our hearts for what breaks his heart. And I know as I look out over the room, a room this size with this many people, that many of you are walking through life with a broken heart. So I don't want to neglect to acknowledge that. That we walk through life with broken hearts. And oftentimes the very pieces of our lives and the very pieces of our hearts are kind of taped and glued together and we're just trying to get through. So I understand that. And we're going to look at, at something that breaks Jesus' heart today 
as we look at this message titled Triumph and Tears. It's easy to just focus on the triumphal entry as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem and as people celebrate and kind of go crazy and it's it's this wonderful moment and right on the heels of that the tone changes and we see our Savior weeping. So if you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, we're going to be looking at verses 37 through 40 first, and then we'll look at verses 41 and 42 after we've looked at these for a few minutes. So if you don't have a Bible with you, you can reach down and under one of the seats, there are Bibles there, and you can turn to page 1630. We've been walking through the Gospel of Luke. In fact, this passage comes just about 16 verses uh, past the, the passage we looked at last week. So we're, we're camping out a little bit more in Luke. 18 and 19 um, as we move through this and as Jesus makes his journey to Jerusalem today he's entering into Jerusalem making his journey to the the cross kind of come into its final week but before we get into that I'm curious if if I were to ask you what's your dream ride what's your dream car or vehicle how many of you would say it's a sports car of some sort maybe a Corvette I see Randy Kinsey raising his hand right away he's a Corvette Nut. Um, how, how many of you would go with me on the, the 1967 Shelby GT500? Any takers? Okay, we got a couple down here. Very good, very good. How many of you would be more like a luxury sedan? Maybe a Jaguar with leather and burl walnut and all of that. Maybe a few. Maybe you'd rather have a, an RV and drive around and be able to see all your family and friends in this big RV. How many, raise your hands real high. How many of you would select a donkey? The lights are bright, but I don't see any hands going up. So it's interesting, when Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, into the final week of his life, and as we study this passage and we see the people celebrating their coming king, we see a prophecy fulfilled from Zechariah 9.9 that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a colt, the foal, of a donkey that had never been ridden before. And that's the case today as well, isn't it? That Christ approaches so often in unassuming humility, without a lot of pomp and circumstance, without a lot of fanfare. While the people around him are going nuts, he's not caught up in the moment thinking that that he has to have some big train or procession or ride in on on an Arabian steed or something like that. It's, It's not what we would think for a king, and yet... That's so typical of Jesus, isn't it? That he was, he was not so much the conquering king in the sense that people were expecting. He comes as a suffering servant. He comes humble, riding on a donkey. And it's the same today. And a lot of people miss him because his method and his ways have always been the unassuming, the humble, the humble approach. In fact, this is the only time in the Gospels that you'll see Jesus permitting such a display, permitting such uh, an acknowledgement of his divinity or of his royalty. Over and over in the Gospels, we read that they wanted to make him king, but his time had not yet come. Or they tried to make him king, but he walked through their midst. and, And that he wouldn't permit it to take place. He wouldn't allow it to happen because the time had not yet come. And yet we see in this moment... The time had come. And there's a couple of reasons for this. There's the deep, deep symbolism that accompanies the Passover feast. So if you've been reading along in the Gospel of Luke, you know that that this all takes place on the week of Passover. 
And so Passover is coming. Jesus comes to fulfill this prophecy, riding on a donkey. He comes also to force the Pharisees to act. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had been looking for a way, and we've read that several times in, in the Gospel of Luke, that they'd been looking for a way to kill him, looking for a way to, to take him out, looking for a way to, to stop what was taking place. And it's interesting to me, how many times, if you've read the Gospel of Luke, how many times does he heal on a Sabbath and catch grief for that? Quite a few, right? And this time through Luke, I had never seen this before, but this time through Luke, I'm reading it, and I realize that everything that happens from Thursday night, when he institutes the Last Supper, Thursday night was the Passover meal. That started the seven-day period of the, the festival of Passover or the festival of unleavened, of unleavened bread. And do you know what they were not supposed to do during the festival of unleavened bread? Well, the first is they weren't supposed to eat any leavened bread. They were only supposed to eat unleavened bread. So that one's helpful. Um, The other thing is they're not supposed to work at all, are they? And if you've been reading the Gospel of Luke, you know they got real busy on Thursday night, didn't they? They got real busy convening councils and holding trials and doing all these things that they would have been blasting Jesus for just a week earlier. And that just gives us a little insight into the human condition, perhaps, as we, you know, complain about one thing, and then we do it ourselves. Or we bust somebody for one thing, and then we do it ourselves. But I I had to notice, as Jesus says in verse 38, he uses some language that should sound familiar if you've been reading the Gospel of Luke this month. He says in verse 38, peace in heaven and glory in the highest is what the, the people are proclaiming. They're proclaiming this over and over. And, and Jesus is told by some of the Pharisees to quiet the people. He says, well, I can't. Even if, even if I could, the rocks would cry out. So all of heaven and earth are aware of what's happening. And the people are declaring something very similar, very familiar to Luke chapter 2. When the angels greeted the shepherds out in the fields, what did they say? They said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Do you see the connection that the people, as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, as they see, see their king coming to them, they cry out, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, echoing the angel's declaration back at the beginning of the story, 33 years earlier, as they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. It's heaven and earth being reconciled, and it's a celebration that even nature would join in on. And yet, if you continue on from verse 40 to verse 41, there's a drastic change in tone, isn't there? While all this is going on and while Jesus is saying, look, I couldn't quiet the crowd even if I wanted to, we're told in verse 41 that as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. And this account occurs only in Luke. There's other times that, that Jesus has said, he, you know, he looked over Jerusalem and, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, um, and laments the tremendous potential that existed in Jerusalem. And we shift from triumph to tears very quickly. And in the midst of the celebration, Jesus begins to lament the destruction that is to come. Now, it's interesting, as he comes down the Mount of Olives, which we're told right here in the passage, 
He's looking right at Jerusalem. In fact, we've got a picture of what Jerusalem looked like in the time of Jesus. So this is what he sees when he comes down. Now, we're used to large cities. We, we've, you've probably flown into one or driven into one. I remember the first time we were on our honeymoon, the first time we drove into Las Vegas. You can see the glow in the atmosphere if it's dark out from, I don't know, 50, 100 miles away. But in first century Palestine, there weren't a lot of cities like this around, okay? So as you came down the Mount of Olives, and you could see this in front of you, there was nothing like this that 99% of the people had ever seen. Some of the great Roman cities might have, have rivaled it, but not so much in the beauty or the compactness that we see in Jerusalem. And he can see the temple right before him on the right side, and he can see the walled inner city, and he can see... And know that this is the center of the Jewish religion. And his lament in verse 42 is if you, even you, even Jerusalem, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. Uh, But now it is hidden from your eyes. It is hidden from your eyes. And so here we have this in Luke 19, 42, this lament Where Jesus is saying, if only you had known what would bring you peace, but it's hidden from your eyes. What happened at the beginning of the chapter? As he's approaching Jericho, he healed a blind man, and Bartimaeus received his sight. And so there's the literal healing, the literal physical transformation that took place in Bartimaeus as he went from blind to having sight. And now, just a few verses later, Jesus is lamenting the spiritual blindness of the people. And again, that's the same as we encounter today. That there are many who have the, the gift of sight. They have the ability to see and they have the sense of sight. And yet they're spiritually blind and unable to see their need for a Savior. And unable to, to recognize their spiritual condition, the poverty of soul and spirit that they face. And that is what Jesus laments right now. That is what brings tears to his eyes. In the midst of his triumph, in the midst of his entry into Jerusalem, and everybody is celebrating. His heart is broken, just like the song we sang. His heart is broken for what breaks the heart of God. And so I believe that those who have triumphed with Christ will also shed tears with Christ. Those who have experienced the gift of salvation have experienced the triumph over sin and death, which we'll be celebrating next week. They also shed tears with Christ for the same things that that Christ sheds tears for. I wonder, does the world apart from God break your heart? Does the world apart from God break your heart? Do you shed tears for the lost? Do they move you to compassion? Do they move you to action? As you consider family members and friends and co-workers and neighbors who are far from God and who will be separated from him for eternity if something doesn't change. I wrote a couple of statements in my, journey, in my journal that the greater our joy is over our own salvation, the greater our sorrow will be for those who are still lost. You see, sometimes we get a gospel of what we've been saved from, right? Sometimes we're presented the gospel and it's, be saved. Be saved from hell. Be saved from an eternity where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And and that's true. We are saved from that when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. 
But there's also what we're saved to. We're saved to the kingdom of God. We're saved to an eternity with God. We're not just saved from the bad things. We're saved to the good things. We're saved to the glorious goodness that awaits us for eternity in God's presence. And as we consider our great joy over our own salvation, it has to be both. It has to be both what we have been saved from and what we have been saved to. And as we consider those and meditate upon those and dwell upon those, we see that that our joy over our own salvation, as it grows, what should accompany it, what should accompany the joy over the triumph that we participated in is our sorrow over those who have not yet experienced it. They have not yet tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And so the second statement that I, that I, I wrote in my journal was, the greater your sorrow is over those who are lost, the greater your joy will be over their salvation. I can tell you there is nothing like watching a believer come up out of the baptism waters and knowing that you were a part of that story. Knowing that maybe you made the invitation to church or maybe you taught that child in Sunday school or, or you were a greeter the first time they walked through and they weren't quite sure what to do or where to go and you were able to, to extend a kind hand to them or a kind word to them and point them in the right direction. And when you see them come up out of the water and you see a life transformed and you see a public profession of the faith that they are, are experiencing now, of the life that they are experiencing now, and you know that God used you to intersect in that. There's nothing quite like that. The, the, the joy that we experience in those moments is correlated to the sorrow that we live with over those who are not yet saved. And that's why there's so much to celebrate when someone takes that step of obedience to Christ and is baptized. Now, interestingly enough, I, I closed with a passage from 2 Corinthians last week, and I didn't feel like I did it justice. It was kind of just kept coming back to mind all week as I was thinking about it, and I was, I was coming, you know, thinking about where we were going this week and about the triumph and the tears and about, and about how those who triumph with Christ will also shed tears with Christ. And I went back to this passage, and I backed up a few verses. Last week we read 16 through 21, but I want to read... Verses 14 through 21 to you of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is in uh, the New International Version. Um, If you've got one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 1799. Because Paul brings it all together for us so beautifully. And it ties up uh, where we started this series back in Luke 14 as well. So 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14, we read, For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The triumph has taken place. The old is gone. The new has come. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I love how that passage begins, verse 14, For Christ's 
love compels us. Christ's love compels us. Does that remind you at all of Luke 14 when we were talking about the parable of the great banquet and, and the people start coming up with their lame excuses and the master of the house says, no, go back out into the cities and the byways, into the streets and the country roads and compel them to come. Make them come to the banquet. Make them come. There's a sense of urgency that we see, not only in, in the invitation to the banquet, but also in the ministry of reconciliation that God has given to us. You see, he died for all of us. Therefore, we no longer live for ourselves, but we begin to live for those who have not yet heard the good news, for those who do not know that Jesus died to pay the penalty for their sins. That's the gospel. The gospel begins with the bad news that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That we're all on a level playing field apart from Christ. And then it continues with the good news that though the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life in His Son, Christ Jesus. And if we've experienced that triumph, then we become co-laborers. We become ambassadors with Christ to share that news, to make that invitation, to bring people back to God, to compel them to come back. In fact, Paul uses the language, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Have you ever had somebody implore you? It wasn't a casual request, was it? Implore means you beg, you plead, you, you do anything you can to get people to come. There's a sense of urgency. There's a desperation implied in imploring people to come. And that leads us into our bottom line today, that the same love that took Christ to the cross sends us to the lost. The love that took Christ to the cross as he finishes his journey to Jerusalem, as he finishes his journey to the cross, the same love that sent him there sends us as well. We talk a lot about the Apostle Paul that wrote almost half of the New Testament, that planted churches all around the Mediterranean rim. And we refer to him as the Apostle Paul. And many people don't even realize that apostle literally means sent one. That he got that that language attached to him because when he was saved, when he was literally knocked off his horse on the way to Damascus and knocked blind, rendered blind, as he received his sight, he received a commissioning. He received a sending to go and to to be Christ's ambassador to the Gentiles. You see, the, the Jewish people were being evangelized by Peter and the other 11 disciples. And Jesus needed somebody to go and to be sent And so when we talk about the Apostle Paul, we're talking about the one who was sent to the Gentiles. And we see this love of Christ compelling Paul and controlling Paul and sending Paul to the lost to implore them to live for Christ, to implore them to live for the lost. And so as I encourage you to fill the seats, as I encourage you to invite people, don't just kind of make a half-hearted invitation Implore people to come. Compel them to come. Invite them, yes, but compel them to be a part of the family of families here at Linwood. That's the vision for this church, and that's the reality for this church, that it's a family of families, that when you come into the family, whether you're a family of one or a family of six or a family of seven or a family of more, that your family becomes a part of our family, that your family becomes a part of the Linwood family. And my vision for a church is always that it would become the perfect place for imperfect people, people who are far from God, 
to become fully devoted followers of Christ. That there would be an environment here. That there would be a passion for evangelism. There would be a passion for discipleship. That there would be a passion for people to be reaching out to the lost, to be reaching out to those who are not yet here. And it's so easy as a church to get focused on the inward things. And I, don't, I haven't experienced that here, so don't, don't feel like this is a corrective action. But every church I've been a part of has struggled with this, this realization that, that there are people who are not here that are actually the focus of the ministry. That the, the people who are not yet here, the people who have never been in a church or haven't been in a church for years. You see, they don't have a voice in the congregational meeting. They don't have a voice in the boardroom because they're not here. So we have to always be thinking about them. Always be having hearts broken for them and wanting them to become a part of. And opening our arms and opening our hands and saying, what can we do? How can we help you come to the realization that Jesus paid the penalty of your sins so that you don't have to? So that you can live for him. So that you can become an ambassador for Christ with him. So that you can join in this ministry of reconciliation to reconcile the world apart from God to be God's people. So as we come to a close here, if you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then I will echo Paul's words and implore you to be reconciled to God. The beauty of the gospel is that though our sins have separated us from him, he came to us. He didn't just say, here's how you do it. Here's how you get back. Here's how, you know, do this, try harder, do this, try harder, go here, do that, do that. He went way beyond. He came to us. He took the nails for us. He bled for us. He paid the penalty of our sin. So that if we receive that gift, we can have eternal life with him. And so if you're here today and you don't know him as Lord and Savior, then I would implore you, be reconciled to God. As we close with a song here in a moment, you can pray a simple prayer. It's a simple but profound prayer that opens the door to God's grace, opens the door to a total transformation, opens the door to a new life in Christ that we've just heard about. And if you have been reconciled, then I would implore you to live for him, to join the the team on the ministry of reconciliation. I look out over the crowd here today and I see so many people who are who are engaged in that. And if you've kind of been on the fringes, if you've kind of been on the sidelines, step into that. There's no greater joy than living for Christ. There's no greater joy than joining him on his redemptive mission. There's no greater joy than than knowing that there will be people in heaven, that there will be souls in heaven for eternity because you allowed yourself to be used by God. The love that took Christ to the cross sends us compels us to go to the lost. So what if you prayed for a broken heart? What if we all did? What if we woke up every morning and asked God to break our heart for the things that break his heart and then got busy working with him to redeem the world? Would you bow with me as we pray this morning? Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your word as always. We are thankful for the opportunity to worship you. We're thankful for your triumph, Lord, that we saw just a foretaste of it in our text today as you entered Jerusalem and made your way to that cross on our behalf. 
And a week from today, we will celebrate your triumph over sin and death on our behalf, Lord. We pray as one people that the things that break your heart will break our hearts as well. And that we will share in your triumph and bring others into the family of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.